you'll see something on the screen that's something that we've really been learning in totality over the past, I, would, I can't remember actually when we started. I'll say three months. It's from 1 Corinthians 12. You'll notice the, the verses on the screen. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, what does this mean? Well, we we kind of know it, but are there any grammar nerds in here? Any grammar nerds? Come on, put your hands up. All right, it's just me and four other people. Um, I've been outed in that regard. It's interesting when Paul wrote this, the language he uses, the present indicative active. That is saying this is true and this is happening right now. If one member suffers, all suffer together. This is happening right now. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That too is happening right now. The question we're going to explore this morning is how can this be possible? We understand hurting when, it, when it's isolated and it's hurting in itself. And we get rejoicing and, and honoring when that's kind of isolated in itself. But how is it possible that these things can coexist together? How can they be happening at the same time? How can we suffer together and honor and be rejoicing together at the same time? The world has no answers for something that is so deeply spiritual. Because the world doesn't want to be around people who are hurting. Let alone take on their hurt and bear it together with them. The world has endless ways you can forget your hurt or mask it. The world tells you to find one of those things when you're hurting. Just don't, with your hurt and suffering, make us uncomfortable. And don't make us deal with your mess. Try harder at rejoicing. Smile. Especially if you're in church. Don't wreck this for us. But the world actually has no power to help us do this. When we are suffering, what power can the world give us to rejoice? Especially when another person or group could be honored for the very thing that is causing and is a source of suffering in us. We can fake it, but the world has no power to help us make it. And more deeply... If I'm able to rejoice, and if I rejoice when someone else is honored, how does this not then diminish the meaning and value of my own hurt and suffering? What does this say about its purpose? Is it all for nothing if I'm just supposed to rejoice? If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It is declarative, is indicative of how the church is to be. The world's only response to this tension of dual suffering and rejoicing is to cancel, isolate, to run away and hide, or to divide people. The world can't live in peace in both of those places at the same time. Only the word of God can keep us together in love amidst two seemingly opposite conditions. And our culture has handed us a bit of a catalyst for thinking this through. What are we celebrating today, Mother's Day? Well, the intention of Mother's Day is that we would honor our mothers. For some, it also brings hurt. 
And since some of our members are suffering now, we all are suffering together. That's what the word of God says. There's a pain of loss of our children. Perhaps a pain of loss of our own mothers who we remember now. Some women want to be married but never seem to find someone to be married to. So they're unable to have children. And then there is the pain and suffering and hurt of infertility. In this modern medical age, there's a unique hurt as well. As we can see and know more than ever how our own genetic contributions impact the lives and suffering of our own children. And something deepens as we mature too. For some of us, we're still working through how we can honor a mother who didn't seem worthy of much honor. For others, our hearts ache at the desperation of our unsaved children. And there's hurt from the guilt of past decisions surrounding life and motherhood. And then there's this weird double guilt that we feel about still feeling guilty when we know God has erased that guilt. Even when all is peaceful in our homes and our marriages are okay and our children are nestled all snug in their beds, there's still this tension that we feel of being under attack by this world. More than ever, motherhood is devalued. It's denigrated and it's twisted so that womanhood entirely is completely devalued. That's the attempt by the world. And I want to encourage you and exhort you, mothers and sisters, the world is not working things for your good. It's trying to deceive you and distract you from the purpose of God and destroy the identity that you have in Christ Jesus. Some of your most vocal supporters are waterless springs. They are mummifying your souls with their lies. The world says, freedom! But then it enslaves you, sisters, as objects to be ogled and grabbed and used and then discarded when you get old. It says, hear me roar, but then gives you an impossible standard. The world reduces your entire identity to being a comparison to men. The world views you simply as small men with less testosterone. The world has an utter contempt for the unique value and beauty God has built into you as women. But this is not the whole story. When mothers and women are honored, all the parts of the church rejoice together as well. We do honor you, moms, and we are rejoicing together with you because you are honored. You work hard, especially for the education of your children. You rock the sweatpants and the fancy dress with equal measure. You work extra hard to pay for things like music lessons and swimming, even things like ninja camp. You play with trucks and braid hair, equal skill in those things. It seems like you alone have the gift of interpretation when your two-year-old explains something to you in foreign tongues. You herd the cats. You squash whining and quiet squirreliness with a single smoldering stare in church. It's amazing. 
It's like Elijah and the widow's oil, how you have gum and mints to last an entire worship service. And you have a special discernment from God to be able to roll your eyes at fake tears and wipe away the ones that are real. You help husbands with their lives and purpose and ministry, even when the world says it's a waste of your talent and your girl power. And you listen. You show us that life matters and that God's word is indeed beautiful and that his design is very good. And you continue to pray and pray and pray when others give up, even as your children have children, and you find that you've earned a new title, some of you as well. So we honor you, grandmas. Right now, as we think of these things, as we think of motherhood, we are all rejoicing together for who you are and what God does through you. Things that can literally be done by no one else. Not just because you're really good at it, but because through both your womanhood and your motherhood, you have a unique and distinct way that you show the world who God is and what he is like. So in this moment right now, the Bible says, the living word of God says that we together simultaneously are experiencing pain together, but also we together are rejoicing. How can this be? We're going to look at Romans 8, the bulk of it, the back half of it, where we learn about divine hope. We're going to think about divine hope. This passage teaches us how the church, that is Summit Church, that is all of the believers in Christ Jesus together, how the church can rejoice together without burying our heads in the sand, right? Without pretending that hurt is not real, without just saying we're going to push hurt away. And at the same time, how the church can hurt together without diminishing the beauty and the goodness of the will of God. How can this be? That's what we're going to learn together from Romans 8. I'd ask that you join me in praying now. Dearest Heavenly Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we might know and understand the truth of your word. Pray that you would help us understand that we're beholden to nothing but your word. That we're not to owe anyone anything but to love them. I pray where we have bristling or resistance against the truth that you have for us, that you would put that away and we might receive it with joy and eagerness this morning. I pray where there is hurting, God, that you would help us see that according to your word, not just pushing it away, but truly understanding the depth and power of your will. Father, we do indeed want to glorify you. We want to understand the depth and beauty of your will. We can only do that through you. Help us, dearest Heavenly Father. Amen. So we are in Romans 8. You can turn in your Bible there, flip on your device. I don't know how you'd have to flip a device. Swipe in your device to Romans 8. We're going to start in verse 16. It's a weird place to start. The reason we're starting in a weird place is just because we don't have enough time, and I know that some of you have to get to brunch, right? So we can't do all of Romans 8 as a review, which we did on Easter, right? So we're starting in verse 16. If you're looking in your Bible, it's going to be in a weird place. That's just how it is. God asks us to do hard things sometimes, doesn't he? Romans eight sixteen. Are you there? You can look in your Bible. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, 
heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What are verses 16 and 17 teaching us? They're talking about this tension of hope. That is, we have God right now. We are children of God right now in this moment in Christ Jesus. And if children, then we're heirs. That is, there's still something to come as well. So we live in a tension of hope. We are God's now, and yet he's still going to do something. And in this doing something, there is suffering. Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we experience God right now, literally right now. And yet, there is more to come. We live in a tension of hope that is right now is not how things are always going to be. This is not to diminish right now, but just point our minds forward to something greater. And that's what Paul teaches us in verse 18. For I consider within this tension of hope, within this right now and not yetness, for I consider, that is, I've done the logical exercise of comparing these two things, and the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So our hope for future glory, that is our, our, something that God has put inside us to, to look forward to what he is going to do in us, that we would be glorified, that is, we would be, be made perfectly like Christ Jesus, that shapes our view of our current sufferings. If you are suffering now, God does not want you to just push that aside. He does not want you to bury the hurt that you might be experiencing because of your present circumstances. He doesn't want you to just forget or not deal with the tension of things not seeming uh, right now like they should be. God wants you to consider those things, but also understand that your future glory in Christ Jesus is better than what you are currently suffering. And then Paul gives us a couple examples. Paul's really good at examples. Verse 19, this example in creation. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That is, all the created things are, are waiting for Jesus to come back. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. That is, creation didn't choose this itself. But because of him who subjected it's in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So Paul is giving us this example of creation, almost anthropomorphizing it in terms of creation is like a man and that it, it's groaning in tension. Creation declares God's glory, and at the same time, because of the curse of God, creation is, is against man. God cursed creation so it would display the tension of hope. That is, in his, in his creation, there is so much goodness declared about God, there would be a chance, if it wasn't cursed, that, that we would just focus on right now and never think that there's going to be something greater than right now and here. And we would think, well, this is what it all is. Creation groans in this tension. Pastor Todd loves mountains because you can ski on them. I don't know if he's a mountain climber. Um, but if he wanted to climb a mountain, he'd put his mind to it and he would do it. I don't know about like Everest. Maybe you're getting too old for that. But he loves 
skiing and mountains. But here's the weird thing about mountains. Mountains do something to our hearts. When you see a mountain, you're like, wow. Especially around here, it's so different. We have dunes, maybe. It's like a, I don't know, poor man's mountain. But there's these mountains, and what is the weather currently doing to the glory of the mountains? It's, it's eroding them. Creation groans in this tension. There's earthquakes and tornadoes. God has put a ceiling on it. Creation, if it were a man, wants to cry out at how awesome God is. But it can't fully do it because God doesn't let it. And the conclusion we're supposed to draw from that is, like this, this groan. It's not a word or a language to be spoken. It is a groan. Men, husbands, fathers, if you were with your wife during labor, there are sounds made that are not a language, that are terrifying. And your wife, as she groaned in childbirth, wasn't trying to express anything other than, I can't do it because I'm a man. Creation groans. People groan too. Not only the creation. Look at verse 23. Is your head in your word? Good. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That is when Jesus comes back. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So creation groans in tension, but we do too in ourselves. We experience it in our heads, the things that we think about, in our bodies, and in our hearts. And in that, we hope. That is, we recognize that right now is not how it's always going to be. That doesn't mean that right now is bad. It doesn't necessarily mean that right now is is good either. It's just there is something greater to come. Inherent in the idea of hope is waiting for something. That right now it's not how it's supposed to be. And that's what we see in verses 24 and 25. If you see something, you don't have to hope for it. Like, what's your favorite sandwich? Any sandwich lovers in here? Boy, we're timid. I don't know. Okay, good. Sandwich lovers, think of your favorite sandwich or your favorite food, like fried chicken, for example. If you have a piece of fried chicken on a plate and you're walking around with it or your favorite sandwich and someone says, hey, and you're like, man, I could really go for some fried chicken. Eventually someone would be like, dude, you have a piece of fried chicken right in front of you. But if you're driving by and you see Popeye's down the road, not Chick-fil-A, Sam. Popeye's chicken. Sam and I have a debate about the best chicken sandwich. Um, you can pray for Sam in that. <laughs> if you see a Popeye's down the road and you're like, man, I could go for some Popeye's, then it's like, I, I want Popeye's because right now I've got a rumbly in my tumbly and I'm thinking about fried chicken extra crispy dropped in oil and I know it's not good for me, okay? You don't have to talk to me afterwards. But I'm hoping for some chicken. It's a silly example of hope. Who hopes for what he sees and what he has? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And there's kind of two components to this. There's this rudimentary aspect that we would get in reading Romans 7, right? 
I do all these things that I don't want to do because of sin in me. Sin does these things in me. I do all these things. And then there's all these things that I literally, by the Spirit of God, want to do. And my flesh is against that. There's this Romans 7, like, I hate sin. But there's this depth to it as well of what sin has caused and it's not, not just like, well, I do naughty things. When we think about who can rescue me from this body of death, there's also an aspect of, God, I'm with you, and I love you, and I'm doing the right things. But ultimately, in this body, I have an inability to, to give you all that you're due. I'm trying as hard as you, I can, God. I really do love you. I'm serving you. But I know that you're, you're worth more than that, God. And we groan in this tension. We experience it in our heads and our hearts. Because we know that God is due more. But our bodies are breaking down. Verse 26. Likewise. So anytime you see likewise, it's in the same way. When you see the word likewise translated in most modern English translations. In the same way. In the same way, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. That's our weakness. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So creation groans in this tension of hope. We inwardly groan as well in this tension of hope. God's spirit also groans. He joins with us in the tension and suffering of this world to help us know and cling to the beauty and goodness of God's will. What is the Holy Spirit doing when he's interceding? The Holy Spirit doesn't have to convince God the Father to do good things for you. So that's not what the intercession is. It's not like God the Father is against you and the Holy Spirit's like, hey, uh, you got to be nice to him. The Holy Spirit does not have to convince God the Father to do good to you because your Father is not against you. God the Father does not forget how much he loves you how much he has always known you, and he does not forget the work of his son. And the Holy Spirit is not finishing your sentences with a more powerful language that, than your own so that you get a better outcome out of your prayers. So, so if those are two knots, what the Holy Spirit is not doing, what is the Spirit doing in interceding for us? Grab your Bible, if you don't have it. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2. We're going to start in 6. We're going to go through this really fast. So you have to be good listeners, and God will help you think through this. But then you can also mentally file it away and go back to it. I'm going to start in verse 5, basically. Uh, actually, so one before verse 6, because 5 comes before 6. 
so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet, verse 6, look at it. Among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Verse 7, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Whoa. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 9, and Paul is quoting the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 64. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Look at verse 10 then. Are we in this? These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who's from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. The intercession of the Holy Spirit means that when you are at the end of of your rope, hanging on by the tiniest thread that there could possibly be that still allows hanging on of your faith. And you have nothing left to say. And there's nowhere left to turn. And you have no idea what to do. And you can't even pray. And anything that you would say just comes out as a gasp or a gulp or this feeling that you're going to throw up because you don't know what to do because you lack The Holy Spirit groans just as you do. God himself empathizes with your weakness. And the Holy Spirit and God the Father are of the same mind to help you see and hold on to how good he is and how much he loves you. That's what the Holy Spirit is interceding. He's saying, God, let's show him. Let's show Bjorn how much you love him and the goodness of your will and the beauty of it. I have an example of this. Now, to get into the example is going to be tricky because it's going to make me seem like a total sophomoric fool. And you're like, well, we're all on the same page then. All right, so one thing that I liked the most in all of my life was playing football. And I know it's like, oh, hey, meathead. I get it. Like, football is a game where people run into each other and yell at each other. And yeah, it's, it's a violent game, but it's all I ever wanted to do. Well, that, and play basketball. So I got to be okay at football, okay enough to play in college. And it's, it's all I ever cared about. And I remember, if we could go back to, it would be 1998. I was standing in Rock Island, Illinois. Maybe you've heard this story. I've told it to others. Bear with me if you've heard it before. Rock Island, Illinois, the home of Augustana College. And the final siren went off, and I was, in my, I was done with football. Forever. Because I wasn't going to go play pro football. And I, I was so into the game. And then when it was over, it felt like this nothingness came over me. And I just started weeping. And I know that now it sounds weird that there was this, like, man-child who was weeping about football. But at the time, it was all I ever wanted to do. And all I had devoted my life to, really, at that point in time. And I just started sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And I couldn't say anything. And my dad came down from the stands. And I could see him walking to me. And I, 
I started walking to him and I, I just wanted to run over there. And I'm almost throwing up. I'm crying so hard. I'm like, this sucks. I hate this. And the whole time I was thinking, I loved football so much, but there were things I didn't do because I was immature and lazy that could have made me a better football player. And yet there were these other things where I worked so hard and I still couldn't do it. We lost that game. So I'm weeping and my dad comes up and I'm like, Dad, all I ever wanted to do was win. My dad said, you don't have to say anything. My dad knew what I needed. He's like, don't try to explain what you're feeling right now. Don't try to to, to make it right. Don't try to rationalize or justify. Don't try to make the hurt go away because we're standing right here. And then he hugged me and he said, you don't have to say anything to me. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us because he wants us to understand that our weakness, our inability to know what to do or express it, cannot get in the way of the will of God. We don't always know what is good. But he does. He's not going to change every circumstance that we face. Even when we beg him to do it. But he is changing us to be like his son in all those things and through all those things. That's what's good. Verse 28. Maybe you've seen it on posters or coffee mugs. But verse 28 is not separated from verse 27. Paul wants us to understand that even when we've reached the absolute limits of our humanity, God assures us that he's working all things together to bring good for his children. So when you are, like many of us have been, in that hospital room, and there's nothing left to do, and you're weeping, and and you're like, God, I want your will to be done. I love you, God. I want to follow you. I want to do the right thing in this situation. And yet there's this chance that you might be praying against the will of God and saying, bring this person healing. God, even bring this person back to life. Take away the suffering and pain of this person. All these things, and we're left with no words to say. God wants us to remember that in that limit, we don't have to convince him of anything. He's assuring us that he's working all things together to bring good for his children. For those he foreknew, verse 29, he also predestined. Now hold on, nerds. There's theology nerds that are like, let's do it. For those, just let's go through this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you sat down this afternoon and read through Romans 8, you would recognize that Paul wants people to be certain and encouraged no matter what. So many of us have made verses 29 and 30 into just a theological treatise. 
that says something about uh, fancy theological terms and when God did things and how God did things. But God gives us this big view of verses 29 and 30 specifically so that we have a basis for trusting him even when our narrow human view makes it seem like he has forgotten us. You can trust God even when it feels like he's forgotten you. Those he foreknew. What is this teaching us? This is teaching us that God has always known his children. There has never been a time that God has not known his children. The four is before us. There's never been a before God. God has always known his children. He's never changed his mind about his children. And you know what that means? He never will. Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's plan has always been to make his children like his son Jesus. And in that build a huge family. He wants Jesus to be the firstborn among many brothers. That's his plan. God's not going to leave the work unfinished. Called. He made this known to his children so they can follow him. He doesn't leave it up to them. He doesn't expect his children to find their own way. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. That is, God decreed that they are righteous. He's not going to suddenly decide somehow that the work of Jesus Christ, his son, is insufficient. It's a permanent declaration that God has made in his justification of sinners. That is, that they have the righteousness of Christ. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God guaranteed that he will give his children sinless and perishable bodies. He's going to resolve the tension of hope that we now live in. And we won't be disappointed by what we've endured right now. So in each of these things, we have to remember that we can trust God even when it feels like he's forgotten us. He's given us the plan, the big view. So in our lives, when we're myopic or navel-gazing or whatever it might be, we can remember God's big plan and be encouraged that he hasn't forgotten us. He has a plan and he's working through these things. He does not devalue the right now. The hope is just greater than that. What do we say to these things? Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? How do we respond to this? How do we live our lives now that we know this and have this certainty? God is telling us in the answers to some of these rhetorical questions in the coming verses how the church can rejoice without pretending that hurt is not real and how the church can hurt together without diminishing the beauty and goodness of God's will. What then shall we say to these things? This is not about talking. He's asking how we should respond to what we know about who God is and what God has done. First question. If God is for us, look at verse 31, the second part of it. If God is for us, who can be against us? 
you're supposed to think about these questions and have an answer for them so that you might have assurance that God is at work. If God is for us, who can be against us? Think about it. When our God, trust in God is assaulted, we compare the size of the enemy doing the assaulting to the size of God. There is no one, no being, or anything who wants you to fall that's bigger, wiser, or stronger than God. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one can be against us. They can try, and they do. But ultimately, God is bigger, wiser, and stronger than, than anything that might come against those who desire us to turn away from him. If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When we face great need, we compare the size of the need to the size of God's grace. God already proved the lengths he's willing to go for us in giving up his son, right? So think about your favorite candy. Yes, I like food and candy a lot. Think about your favorite candy. Someone say what their, the best candy is. Re- did someone say Reese's? Yes, God is at work at Summit Church. So... Reese's, if you're allergic to peanut butter, um, there's other candies too. And you probably don't like Reese's because it puts you into anaphylactic shock. So, there's Reese's and other things. But think about the, the best candy that you, you could possibly ever have. And you're like, okay. And then think about the worst or, or lowest candy. So, go back to trick-or-treating some months ago. And there's these orange and black like wrapped candies Rachel's nodding. They're the worst candies in the history of candy. No one even knows what they are. They just pull your fillings out um, because you ate too much candy anyway. And they're the worst candy. So if someone's willing to give you the greatest candy, what are are they not going to give you candy-wise? If I'm going to give you a Reese's, would I not then give you a Snickers? Let's take it up to another level. If I'm willing to give of myself for something... What am I going to leave out then? If I'm willing to die for you, and then you ask me for $5 to buy a a burger at a gas station, do you think I'm going to be like, well, I don't know, man. Like, I need that $5. You get the example. God is graciously giving us all things. He's proven that he's going to give us uh, anything that we need because he's already given us the whole picture in Christ Jesus. When we face great need, we compare the size of the need, whatever that need might be, to the size of God's grace. God already proved the length he's willing, lengths he's willing to go for us in Jesus. He's not going to hold back from you. That is not what God is doing. It feels like he's not there. He's proven he'll give you everything. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. This is interesting. We might read this as, well, no one can make a charge against me. But then what do you do when someone makes a charge against you? So it's not really about what other people can do. It's what we should be thinking when other people make charges against us. Did I skip verse 32? Someone give me a thumbs up or thumbs down. No, I didn't. All right. Let's chalk that up to an awkward sermon moment. 
So verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. When sin is exposed and righteousness is questioned, we appeal to God's justice. People make accusations against us all the time. And here's the thing. We have this tendency in our humanity to be like, that's not true. But there's the reality of when someone makes an accusation, sometimes it's getting pretty close to the truth, and that's what hurts us. But when my sin is exposed or my righteousness is questioned by anyone, my appeal is to the justice of God. That is, God, you dealt with this. You dealt with the way that I am in Christ Jesus. I'm trusting in that sacrifice. So no accusations against God's children can change his permanent declaration that they're righteous in Christ. The reality is when someone accuses us, sometimes we are slandered, that is wrongly accused, but sometimes the accusations that are made against us are true. You are this way, your heart is this way, you are misguided and your motivations are wrong, and sometimes those bring conviction and hurt. But our right answer when we face those things is you don't know half of how messed up my heart is, and yet God has justified me in Christ Jesus, and that's what I'm going to lean on. There's no accusation that can be made against you in Christ Jesus that can change God's consideration and then permanent declaration that you are righteous in Christ. Along with that, who's to condemn? This has some strong words on it. We talked this week on Wednesday, I think it was, but what is condemnation? I think perhaps we have too thin or weak a view of what condemnation is today in the way that we use that word. We say that we feel condemned because someone says that uh, these pants are too tight on me. Or I feel condemned because someone questioned whether my motivations were wrong. Condemnation is a, a, a damning to hell. Eternal punishment. Who is to condemn? Who is to damn you to hell? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. When voices try to damn us to hell... We point to Jesus' death. No one can execute a greater punishment than the one God already carried out, carried out on Jesus. Christ Jesus is the one who died. So we don't have to. More than that, more than that, we take hope in Jesus' resurrection. No one can show a greater display of power than the one God showed in raising Jesus from the dead. What's stronger, death or the resurrection of Christ? More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. When voices try to damn us to hell, we depend on Jesus' intercession. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Christ Jesus, our King, Christ and Savior, Jesus, is actively seeing us through to the end. Christ Jesus is interceding at the right hand of God. He is carrying you through to the end. God is not against you. Jesus is calling for justice because he took on the punishment. Verse 35, 
We're starting to summarize these things. They're congealing into this understanding of how we can live in this tension. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. When the God-haters seek to destroy our trust in him, the love of Christ is greater than that. Paul's quoting from Psalm 44 here. You can see it on the screen, so you don't have to turn there. I would suggest reading Psalm 44 sometime today or later this week. But in verse 21, the psalmist writes, All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. We've not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you've broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we'd forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of our heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The psalmist is writing here in terms of God, I do love you. I recognize that I'm imperfect. I recognize that I'm broken. But I haven't forgotten about you. I'm seeking you right now in writing this. I haven't been false to your covenant. Yes, I am perfect, but I'm, I'm trying to seek you, God. My heart hasn't turned back from you. My steps aren't going the wrong way. I'm not seeking after the wrong things. Yet you've broken us in the place of jackal the, jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. God, I didn't forget about you. I'm not worshiping false gods. You would know if I was doing this, and I'm not, God. Yet it's still not getting better. For your sake, I'm still being killed and attacked. And we're regarded like sheep to be slaughtered. That's the tension of hope. But in all these things, verse 37, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We super conquer in Christ Jesus. Through God, we decisively and overwhelmingly defeat any attack on our faith. Verse 37 is another coffee mug verse. And I want to ask you, what kind of victory are you looking for? What kind of victory are you looking for? I think about my wife. She didn't know I was going to say this. Ask forgiveness, not permission. I think, of, I think about my wife and the career she's been through, her education and then career. And then when we moved to Michigan, we had Hunter and Brock. And if you don't know Heather, um, she was a, not an elite, but she was a competitive triathlete. Remember that, the days of triathlon? It's not as popular anymore. Um, and she continues to compete. So she has her, uh, not in triathlon, but she competes in uh, different competitions. She has her Olympic weightlifting certification. Um, and she has uh, the CrossFit gymnastics certification. She also has a really interesting certification in regards to, I'll just say, how aging impacts women within sports. So my wife is very smart, incredibly successful, um, and yet she doesn't win 
every competition. Now, here's something. I think that my wife could win more competitions. I really think that she could. The, the challenge is she has three things that are against her. Well, four. One is me, and I'll say that one first. Her age, right? But then the other three are named Bjorn, Hunter, and Brock. Those things are against my wife being very victorious on the playing field of her athletic endeavors. And you know what? Heather does not care in the least bit that she is not victorious in, the, victorious in those ways because she is victorious in what she is suffering now and what she goes through now for the sake of something greater than personal pursuits. And that is that she is a great wife, she is a great woman of God, and she is a great mother. And that's more important of a victory to have than the victories of this life. She will have a greater one in Christ Jesus that is to come. What kind of victory are you looking for in your life? Do you want a successful business? How do you pray? God doesn't want you to have a successful business. And then into more depth. What do you do when you want something so desperately? Motherhood. Your children to come to Christ Jesus. And you have to wait for that. What kind of victory are you looking for? Verse 38. For I am sure... I'm confident that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where have we placed our certainty and what type of victory are we looking for? Whether it is death or life, whether it is angelic beings or rulers. What about things that are happening right now? What about the thoughts we have about the things that could happen to us? Height or depth that is to the heavens, that is down to the bowels of the earth. Nothing else in all of creation, that is nothing that's created, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing more certain and powerful than what God has given us in Jesus. That's how we can, we can stand and, and suffer, but rejoice at the same time. And that is how when some are honored, even if there's a temptation to be envious of them or jealous or hurt as they're honored, we can rejoice with them. That's how we do it. Because we are in the love of Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for your goodness. Teach us now in our hearts to sing praise to you, to rejoice, to not hide in our suffering, but to seek you out in it and to seek your will. And help us to honor one another above ourselves. And then as some are honored, to have the spirit of Christ to rejoice all together.